Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Supreme Court starts its new term today with a challenging environmental case. The court plans to take on some of America's toughest issues from LGBT discrimination to election law. The death toll from Hurricane Ian grows as teams carry out their rescue missions. Florida lawmakers criticize how the federal government approves relief money. Meanwhile, President Biden vows more funding for storm-ravaged Puerto Rico, where the money would go and what Biden says about climate change. Presidential elections in Brazil, a former president running against the incumbent. South American nation among a dwindling number of countries in the Americas with a right-leaning head of state. The Supreme Court kicked off its new term today with an environmental case that challenges the government's reach on private lands. It's just one of several cases the court will hear this term on issues affecting Americans across the country. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Supreme Court justices on Monday struggled to understand how the EPA decides which water the government regulates. In its first case of the new term, justices pressed the EPA to define waters of the United States. The main question is whether wetlands are included in the waters of the United States. The court's decision will impact whether or not landowners can build homes on their own land. On Tuesday, the court will hear a case that questions whether race should take priority when drawing congressional district lines. The case made its way to the Supreme Court after a lower court decided the state of Alabama must create two majority black voting districts rather than one. The question presented is whether or not the state of Alabama's new redistricting plan violates the Voter Rights Act. And over to College Admissions, a nonprofit that advocates for fair admissions, challenges the affirmative action policies of two universities. The court is asked to decide whether or not colleges should stop using race as a factor in admissions decisions. The court will hear oral arguments on October 31st. In an election law case, Republican lawmakers in North Carolina are fighting a top state court decision that found a new voter map was illegal partisan gerrymandering, meaning that it favored Republicans. And in a First Amendment case, the court will hear arguments on whether or not a religious designer must create websites that cater to the LGBTQ community. Can Colorado law stop her from stating her religious beliefs about same-sex marriage? But there's one notable case the court won't be hearing this term. The court rejected MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell's petition to review a defamation lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems. The lower court's ruling that allowed the lawsuit to move forward remains in place. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. As Florida begins to rebuild communities ravaged by Hurricane Ian, the death toll is rising. And most of those deaths are in a single county. And we hear from some Florida lawmakers who explained why they rejected a spending package with disaster relief. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details. As search and rescue missions continue throughout Florida in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, officials have discovered that around 100 people have died, at least 54 of those in one Florida county. Search and rescue teams have been out countless hours straight through the night nonstop with over 800 rescues. That's huge. Lee County officials ordered evacuations less than 24 hours before landfall. That was a day after some neighboring counties and two days after storm surge warnings. 
you know, they informed people and most people did not want to do it. I mean, that's just that's just the reality. So you know, you're in a situation, are you going to grab somebody out of their home that doesn't want to? I don't think that's the appropriate use of government. I mean, I think that that, that takes it a little too far. Shattered Florida communities bond together to cope with the destruction from Ian's wrath. It wiped out the one road that links this island to the rest of the state. We have a lot of kind-hearted people who pull together all the resources that they have, you know, from water, from fuel, from meat, you know, from all kinds of supplies. The destruction expected to deal a blow to the state's economy, as rebuilding communities will be costly. Losses are predicted to cost between 28 and 47 billion dollars. Florida lawmakers are now asking the federal government for more money to pay for the damages. That's after nearly all Republicans in Congress voted against a funding bill with 19 billion dollars for disaster relief. People need to understand that we can do it. It's possible to do it without loading it with these other things, because otherwise you'll have people in the Senate, in the House that are going to vote against disaster relief because they view these disaster relief bills as ways for other people to get their pork and their pet projects done. Rubio was not present for the vote, but he said he'd oppose any bill that's packed with unrelated spending, while advocating for more targeted disaster relief funds to pass Congress. Senator Rick Scott explains he voted against the disaster relief because it was lumped together with unrelated spending, like billions more for Ukraine and other measures. Representative Matt Gates expressed his opposition on Twitter, saying, quote, Dear Congress, on behalf of my fellow Florida man in grave need of assistance, just send us like half of what you sent Ukraine, signed your fellow Americans. Ian is expected to be one of the costliest storms ever. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And President Biden visited Puerto Rico today. Thousands are without power there two weeks after Hurricane Fiona hit the island. NTD's Iris Tao has more on what the president is vowing to do. We came here in person to show that we're with you. President Biden is in Puerto Rico. The island's just recovering from Hurricane Fiona, which lashed the region last month and caused widespread flooding and power outages. For days, people, people live without power, without water, some still, no idea want to be back again. As thousands still remain without power, Biden announced $60 million in infrastructure funding for the island. And that money comes from a bipartisan infrastructure law passed last year. White House officials say the funding will shore up levees, strengthen flood walls, and create a new flood warning system to help the island prepare for future storms. We have to ensure that when the next hurricane strikes, Puerto Rico is ready. And that's before Biden brings up climate change. And more extreme weather is going to continue to hit this island and hit the United States overall. And as we rebuild, we have to ensure that we build it to last. We're particularly focused on the power grid. Biden says he'll give more money to the island to transform its power grid with what he calls clean and reliable energy. Meanwhile, President Biden is traveling to Florida on Wednesday to survey damage sustained by Hurricane Ian. But the White House on Monday declined to say if Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will accompany Biden during his visit. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. The Kremlin says it favors what it called a balanced approach to the issue of nuclear weapons after a key ally of President Vladimir Putin called for Russia to use the weapons in Ukraine. A top Russian official urged the Kremlin to consider deploying low-yield nuclear weapons in Ukraine after Russian troops retreated from the strategic city of Lyman. 
Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Ramzan Kadyrov, the leader of the Chechnya region, had the right to voice his opinion, but that Russia's military approach should not be driven by emotions. But even in difficult moments, emotions should be kept out of any kind of assessment. So we prefer to stick to balanced, objective assessments. The Kremlin has made clear that those nuclear protections now extend to the four regions of Ukraine that Moscow is in the process of formally annexing. Any use of nuclear weapons happens in accordance with what is set down in Russia's nuclear doctrine. There can be no other considerations when it comes to this. Those guidelines allow for the use of nuclear weapons if they, or another weapon of mass destruction, are used against Russia, or if the Russian state faces an existential threat from conventional weapons. Ukrainian troops continued to push forward on Monday with their offensive, with Kiev officials and foreign observers hinting at new gains in the strategic southern region of Kherson that the Kremlin wants to annex. Russian troops withdrew from its stronghold of Lyman in the Donetsk region over the weekend. It's reported that Ukrainian forces burst through the front and are advancing rapidly along the Dnipro River on Monday, threatening to encircle thousands of Russian troops. And looking to Brazil, people there are voting for their president. If the current conservative head of state keeps the role, it would break a wave of victories for left-leaning parties in the Americas. Brazilians held the first round of presidential elections on Sunday in what might be the country's most fraught election since the end of military rule in the 80s. Former president left-leaning Lula was topping the polls ahead of election day. The current right-leaning president Jair Bolsonaro was trailing by 10 to 15 percentage points. Lula was president from 2003 to 2010, but couldn't run in 2018 after he was imprisoned on corruption charges. Sunday's results turned out to be much tighter than the polls predicted. Lula got around 48 percent of the votes, while about 43 percent went to Bolsonaro. The remaining votes went to other candidates. In order to win, a candidate has to secure at least 50 percent of the votes. That means Brazilians will have to vote again in a second round showdown between Bolsonaro and Lula. The results surprised me. I thought the difference between them would be much bigger. But we'll see what happens in the second round. Brazil is one of the only countries with a right-leaning head of state in the Americas. Mexico, Colombia, Argentina and Chile are among others who elected left-leaning leaders in recent years. Ahead of the election, Bolsonaro criticized the voting system multiple times, saying that he doesn't trust the process and that some would try to rig the election. After yesterday's results came out, he pointed out how the polls didn't match the outcome. We overcame today's lie. The statistics body said it would be 50 percent versus 30 percent. We overcame that lie. We are moving forward where it's now equal. The White House today commented on the validity of Brazil's results. All available information indicates that the first round of elections was conducted in a free, fair, transparent and credible manner. Lula says he's looking forward to campaigning for the next month. This will be the first chance for us to have a face-to-face -face debate with the president of the republic to find out if he will continue to tell lies or if he will, at least once in his life, speak the truth to the Brazilian people. The second and final round between the two candidates is scheduled to be held on October 30th. Voting is mandatory in Brazil and people who don't do so have to pay a fine. 
Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. And in the UK, under tremendous pressure, the government's finance minister has decided not to cut the top 45% tax rate. It was a big part of Liz Truss's pro-growth, low-tax agenda. Ten days ago, there was fierce backlash when he first announced the plan. Today, Tang said that cutting taxes for the wealthiest was too much of a distraction, which is why he's not doing it anymore. But he says conservatives will still hold the course on the entire plan. I can be frank. I know the plan put forward only 10 year, uh, days ago has caused a little turbulence. I get it. I get it. Uh, we are listening and have listened. And now I want to focus on delivering the major parts of our growth package. In the past 10 days, the value of the British government bonds plummeted, the pound plummeted. There's open criticism across the world, and recent polls showed that support for conservatives, Quartang's party, dropped significantly. The Prime Minister Liz Truss told the BBC that Kwasi Quartang was the one who decided to get rid of the 45% tax rate. She says she still stands by her plan, but that she should have laid the ground a little better. Many of her fellow Conservatives criticized abolishing the tax. This means that the government may have struggled to get enough votes to pass it. Meanwhile, after the 45% rate cut U-turn was announced, the pound moved up. It's not pretty close to where it was before the tax cuts were announced. Bond yields also fall, making it cheaper for the government to borrow money. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, the Chinese Communist Party held its 73rd National Day Saturday in response to protests breaking out in multiple cities across the world. We'll bring you an on-the-ground report from two of those protests in California. And a recent report shows racial differences in wrongful convictions. What's behind the numbers? NTD speaks with an attorney who helps free the innocent. Stay tuned for that story after this short break. October 1st is the National Day in China. Around the world, protesters rallied against the establishment of the Chinese Communist Party due to its long history of violence, human rights violations, and totalitarianism. NTD's Jason Blair brings us a report on two protests that happened in California's Bay Area. Don't listen to the communists. Let's watch what they do. Saturday was China's National Day. It's the day that the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, formally transformed China into a socialist country. Protests against the regime and its National Day took place in Berkeley and San Francisco, California. Today we are here with freedom-loving people around the world to fight against the evil China empire and to fight for the freedom of the, all the nations occupied by China. In the morning, protesters went to the University of California, Berkeley, where the Consulate General of the People's Republic of China in San Francisco was scheduled to speak. They delivered an open letter to the university saying that allowing the Chinese consulate general on campus will, quote, contribute to the whitewashing of crimes committed by the CCP. 
Later in the day in San Francisco, representatives from a number of different communities and countries, including Tibet, Vietnam, Hong Kong, Philippines, Taiwan, and more, gathered in front of the San Francisco Chinese consulate. Speakers called out the communist regime for its human rights abuses and the disasters it has caused around the world. Nearly one million Tibetan children has been forcefully taken away from their parents, forcing them to live in a colonial boarding school and cutting them off from their families, language and religion. Some protesters wore masks and sunglasses to hide their identities to protect their family still living under CCP rule. The regime is known to harass family members of people who speak out overseas. Valerie Sampson was a foreign student in Beijing at the time of the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. She was arrested in the process. She comes to the protest every year because she sees that things keep getting worse. It's totalitarianism. It's on the rise around the world. And it's absolutely terrifying. It sounds as though we have not learned from the, the lessons of the past. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. And a recent study shows racial discrepancies in wrongful crime convictions. NTD's Jason Perry speaks with an attorney who helps free the innocent to find out more. On September 23rd, the National Registry of Exonerations released a report that details the racial patterns of wrongful convictions in the United States. It's a project affiliated with the University of Michigan that analyzes the 3,200 innocent people who have been released from prison since 1989. The report found that black people were seven times more likely to be wrongly convicted than white people. I think having the data in the report is incredibly useful, but it is entirely consistent, but I think the patterns that anyone who has done this kind of work must have been seeing in their career. Black people make up about 14% of the American population, but 53% of the exonerations. Black people were incarcerated about 3.5 times the rate of white people in 2020. That's down from 4.5 times in 2010. Approximately 64% of African-American children live in single-parent homes as of 2019, according to the Annie E. Casey Foundation. And children raised in single-parent homes are significantly more likely to engage in criminal activity, according to a report by the Heritage Foundation. And at the same time, the federal welfare system incentivizes single-parent homes to remain single to receive higher welfare benefits. I spoke with Richard Davis, the legal director of Innocence Project New Orleans. The group investigates the cases of people who are imprisoned for crimes they didn't do, including Sullivan Walter, who was exonerated in August after spending more than 35 years in prison for a rape he didn't commit. I asked Davis if there were any common factors in the cases that led to wrongful convictions. A lot of our cases, um, we see someone wrongfully convicted when there was information the police had that they didn't share with the prosecutor. So it doesn't matter if, you know, the prosecutor genuinely wants to share the information if they don't have the information. And he offered a solution. I think the third thing is you need to hold people account when they commit bad acts that lead to an innocent person being in prison. No one is, pretty much no one is ever held to account in the 42 cases we have
The report also found that black people were 19 more times likely to be wrongly convicted of drug crimes than white people, although both races use drugs at similar rates. He added that if anyone wants to help free or support the wrongfully convicted, they can get involved with the Innocence Project New Orleans. Jason Perry, NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Last week, American rock climber Sasha DeJulian was part of the first ever all-female team to conquer Spain's brutal 2,000-foot Ruta Rayu in the Picos de Europa National Park. DeJulian, along with fellow climbers Matilda Soderlund and Brett Harrington, did a free climb, which unlike free soloing, involves a rope. But DeJulian, who planned this trip a year ago, told me one of the challenges of the nearly all vertical wall is that there's little for the climbers to hold on to. You're using just the tips of your fingers and your toes, which are in climbing shoes. And when you're climbing a grade of 514, for instance, which Ryu composed of, um, you're, you're grabbing these like tiny minuscule little protrusions from the limestone face at a steep angle. DeJulian said preparing for such a climb involves cross-training plus a lot of finger strengthening and pull-ups with heavy weights. And even though her hands have developed such thick calluses to the point that she can't use her phone's touchscreen, a climb like this is a lot for them to bear. Every single pad of my fingers was bleeding and the reason like screaming in the videos is just so painful and you're trying so hard but you're putting like raw blisters into crystals of rock and then leveraging all of your weight into it. So it can be pretty painful, but at the same time, that pain is like that connection to the rock. So you want that Velcro. The climb took four days to summit, which meant sleeping on the side of the cliff, something that Julian downplays as glorified camping. Yet the trio persevered to make history. I knew that it was going to be a really big challenge to take on and I was really excited to go on this expedition with Brett and Matilda and yeah I can't believe we pulled it off. In basketball news Brittany Griner's appeal is set for October 25th. The WNBA star was previously sentenced to nine years in a Russian prison on drug possession charges. And tonight in sports the baseball postseason takes shape as all 30 teams are in action with the defending champion Braves needing a win or a Mets loss to take the division. And in the NFL, the defending Super Bowl champion Rams visit the rival Niners on Monday Night Football. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And lastly, a man completes a solo kayaking journey through the Pacific. It took him nearly three months to make it from California to Hawaii. NTD's David Lamb heard from the adventurer. Serial <laughs> Deramo completed his first solo kayak crossing from Monterey, California to Hilo Bay in Hawaii after 91 days and nine hours. It is paradise because after 90 days of eating only freeze-run dry meal, having fresh fruits, a good pineapples and fresh fish, bouquet, and anything fresh is good. <laughs> and then, you know, it's Hawaii, so it's the best destination for me. The trip was all human powered. That makes him the second person to do so. 
I had created a little world of myself with my boat, my routine, every day. I had the waves, the connection with the ocean. I had the birds. I even had fish I was talking to, the mahi-mahi. And then, you know, the dolphin, the turtles, and then even the clouds. I, they had a little dance that I, I knew I could recognize. After 90 days, I was in symbiosis with this whole environment. The French-born adventurous faced setbacks. Despite this, he found solutions and continued on the ocean. Like a sunrise, it's like so peaceful. And it's soft, soft. Like swell that was like calming. And it was overwhelming. And then a bird came to see me, like in the middle of nowhere. That was like the universe speaking. Seriously, it was like, it's so simple, it's so beautiful. He blogged about his journey and said people followed and connected to his attitude of living life to its fullest. I started to have a very spiritual journey. You know, when you're disconnected from everything, no social media, no internet, no phone, no email, no friends, you have space, you decluttered your whole mind. And then I started to think about like ideas about life, about what does it mean to love? What does it mean to consider other people like brothers and sisters? And, and I wrote all this on my blog. Now that the journey is over, Deramo and his boat are headed back to California separately. He plans to recover his weight and flexibility to get back to full strength. He doesn't plan to sell his boat anytime soon, if ever. David Lau, NTD News, California. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.